to you. What's your name? Edward Bloom. Hmm. Bloom like a flower? Yes. Oh, here. Here you are, right here. Edward Bloom. Hmm. We weren't expecting you yet. You were expecting me? Not yet. You must have taken a shortcut. Why, yeah, yes, I did. It, it almost killed me. Life will do that to you. And truthfully, the long way is easier. But it's longer. Much longer. And you're here now, and that's what matters. Hi, everybody. My name's Ed Hoffman, and welcome to the main event. Yes, you know, uh, life will do that to you. Shortcuts almost kill you. But you get there faster, and the long way is lo is a lot easier, but it's longer. Hey, you know what? That's a that's a clip from a movie called Big Fish from I don't know how long ago what it was, but I think that's a life lesson, you know. And I think that was meant to be a life lesson. Life will do that to you, you know. The guys that take the shortcuts, you know, uh, they used to say the object of the game was whoever dies with the most toys wins. I think it's whoever whoever uh, whoever retires at the youngest age wins. So the object of the game is to uh, take that shortcut, survive it, make your money, get get comfortable, get your brain in in uh in uh in the right in the right position and and retire with a with a young body. You know what? I'm trying to do that myself. Uh, I got to a uh, I got to a position and then the mortgage crisis hit, and uh, my wife is still asking me, hey, how come we're not retired yet? Because that mortgage thing hit everybody, it hit us too. We didn't lose any, we didn't lose anything. We didn't, uh, we didn't mess up our credit. We didn't lose any houses, but it still happened to us, so I still feel obligated to just keep getting out there and keep working, and I just don't know what retirement really is. So, uh, so I'm going to keep on keeping on, keep on coming to you and give you some life lessons and give you my perspective on what's happening and give you some, uh, insight into, uh, getting yourself into that same position so you can, uh, retire with a young body or at least retire before you die or at least have enough to make that choice if you have it. So anyway, first, first, before I go any further, talk to you about what's going on in this country. And so, and my opinion of it, let me introduce myself. My name is Ed Hoffman, president of Wholesale Capital Corporation, your local direct mortgage lender, based in Southern California with offices all over the area. We're licensed in California and Arizona at this point. If you're interested in getting involved in any of the fantastic opportunities that are real estate and you need financing, Call me toll-free at 855-640-2020. That's 855-640-2020. One last time, day or night. Area code 855-640-2020. If you want to get in touch with me, but you don't want to talk on the phone because you're stealing time from your boss and you don't want your neighbors at work to hear what your personal business is, go to WCCLoans.com after work or on your government-mandated lunch break or your government-mandated 15-minute break if you're not spending it smoking cigarettes and uh or something um go to wccloans.com got all kinds of mortgage information in there go to the loan center and click apply now and uh give me as much information as you want to uh as you want me to have and tell me how much information you want back you'll hear back from either myself or one of my trusty teammates and we'll help fill in the missing pieces to your real estate financing puzzle whether you want to refinance a house that you have whether you want to uh buy a new house Buy an investment property, buy a vacation property, uh, help your kids buy a house so they can get out of your basement or your uh, guest room or your living room couch uh, or the garage. Um, 
Call me if you want to do. If you're a senior and you're interested in one of those reverse mortgage things, and you say, "Hey, what's the deal with this thing? Is it a good thing or a bad thing?" Call me. I'll explain it to you. It's really a good thing, and uh, but you need to understand. I just believe if I load you with all the information, it makes it real hard to 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 uh, not trust your decisions if you understand how everything works. So I'm trying to talk to you on on a level. I don't think I don't think Wall Street I don't I don't think Wall Street wants you to to understand all the financial products. And I just have never thought that's a smart idea. I think hey, if you understand them, you'll make the right decisions. And I'm trying to d- lead you to that anyway. So there's no no uh, fear in me giving you the information. If there's any part of the show you want repeated, go to edhoffman.net, click on the podcast page, listen to it on demand anytime. You can also get the main event podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. Um, you can subscribe to it on iTunes if you want, and it'll pop up on your uh, on your uh, your uh, iPhone or your computer or your whatever phone or your iPod or your iPad or whatever that you listen to, to podcasts on. You can subscribe to it. I don't know if SoundCloud does that, but you can get it anytime you want. Uh, if you want to contact, the, if you want to stay connected with the show on social media, I tweet. All week long, well, sometimes more than others, some weeks more than others, uh, my Twitter is at Ed Hoffman, and uh, you can like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash the main event Ed Hoffman. And uh, let me this week welcome new listeners on Red State Talk Radio, and uh, welcome to the main event, and the main event feels welcome on Red State Talk Radio. So let's talk about the first thing this week, the Trump tax returns. This is the first, uh, this week... Geraldo Rivera was vindicated for his Al Capone's vault fiasco 30 years ago, thanks to MSNBC's Rachel Maddow, who embarrassed herself to the point that even people on the left were mocking her. If you saw it, it was, it was embarrassing. Uh, it was, it should have been embarrassing for her. I thought it was, I thought it was hilarious. It started Tuesday at 7:36 p.m. Eastern when Maddow tweeted, "Breaking: We've got Trump tax returns tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern, MSNBC." Seriously, 90 minutes later, as she went on the air, it was clear she could barely contain her excitement. Trump's tax returns have surfaced, at least a portion of Donald Trump's past tax returns. Uh, What we have tonight has been uh, turned over to a reporter. These are returns for one year. It's a federal return. This is the first time we believe any federal tax returns for Donald Trump have been obtained by anyone, certainly by any news organization, since he became a presidential candidate, let alone president. You know what? This lady, and I use that I use that term loosely, Rachel Maddow, she wouldn't know what a tax return was. You know, and you can hear when she explains some of this stuff a clip or two down the road from here. But you could tell she just doesn't even know. We've got his tax return. It's two pages. You know what? You know what? Trump's tax return. I know what my tax returns look like, and they're about an inch thick. And they're about, I don't know, 50 or 75 pages. I can imagine Donald Trump's tax returns are probably 500 pages long. And you wouldn't, and someone like Rachel Maddow wouldn't even know where to look on him to find out anything that was going on. And your tax returns don't really tell much about you except for what your income was that year. It doesn't tell you any of your secrets or any of that stuff. But, uh, um, you know, she then rambled on for about 20 minutes, desperately reaching to make a connection between Russian oligarch Dmitry Ribolivlev, something, I'll just call him Dmitry. Yeah, me and him are buddies. We call him, I call him by his first name, Dmitry. So Dmitry, something with an R that looks like Russian vodka and uh, Trump's foreign policy interests, mostly based on the fact that Dmitry bought a home from Trump once. 
But first, she had to master pronouncing his name. And I raised this issue of this particular Russian oligarch, uh, Dmitry Rybolovyev. I've been practicing. Rybolovyev. 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 Dmitry Rybolovyev, the guy who paid Trump all that money for that house. I'm just going to call him Russian Standard, you know, because it's it's a it's a word that you can't understand if you look on the bottle of russian standard vodka there's no letters that resemble anything except for the word standard on there and uh it just slides down really smooth and uh next thing you know you're basically brain dead uh basically like rachel maddow so she got that she got the pronunciation down then she stretched even further I mean, during the presidential campaign, Dmitry Rybolovyev's private plane was spotted at least twice at local airports when Donald Trump campaign events were happening nearby. At least once, his private plane was spotted on the tarmac right alongside Donald Trump's private plane while Donald Trump was doing a campaign event. Rybolovyev insists to us that that is a coincidence, but tonight the Palm Beach Post reports that this weekend, Rybolovyev's yacht was parked alongside the yacht that's owned by Robert Mercer, who is the single largest financial backer of the Trump for President effort the single largest financial backer of Breitbart and the person who basically installed both Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon at the top of the Trump campaign after Paul Manafort was fired for his ties to Russia. Well, I have a question. Why is this even news? I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't have a yacht. Okay, you know why? Because I'm not that rich. And can you imagine that people in Palm Beach, Florida, people that have yachts, being next to other people that are rich. And can you imagine people that are rich that wanted to make sure Hillary Clinton wasn't president and they supported Trump? Well, that's basically anybody with a brain that understands how money works or how business works or how America works or uh, how anything. So people with yachts. I mean, I think about this. I was down in San Diego, California a month ago and walking around all these yachts. You know, it's a big kind of ports of call. But there's probably, I don't know, 30 yachts in there. It's not like the parking lot where there's 3,000 cars at the, at, the, at, at the Marriott. And that's right next door to a, to a Hilton or a Westin. It's, there's 30. And there's some really big ones and there's some smaller ones. So if you live in Florida and you have a yacht, I bet you you're right next to a few of the people that are really rich. And imagine them being uh, contributors to the Trump campaign. Let's talk about that. Talk about the plane. Trump flies around on a 737 before he was in Air Force One. Can you imagine the likelihood of this uh, Dimitri guy who bought a house from him in Florida, which I don't really think is. I, I've sold a lot of houses and I don't think I know much. I know the people that bought the one that's five doors down from me. But other than that, I don't think I know anybody who's, well, I got one other one, other one out of about. 60 or 70 houses I've sold. Um, and I'm not a big real estate flipper. I'm a little real estate flipper because um, I have a mortgage company to run. But can you imagine that there's, hey, he sold a he sold a house to this guy years ago. There must be a connection to the Russians. They knew in 2005 that, they knew that in 2005 that he was going to be president 11 years later. I think this is a joke. So I don't know why any of this stuff, I don't know why any of this stuff seems like a coincidence. I don't see or why any of this seems like news. It's not like, uh, you know, hey, Bill Clinton ended up coincidentally at Phoenix Airport the same time that Loretta Lynch was there. And uh, they were in a big international airport. And, uh, 
you know, Bill Clinton happened to be waiting around in the in the tarmac or in the uh, in the in the terminal, and oh look, there's Loretta Lynch's plane. How did Loretta Lynch see Bill Clinton in there? She would have been in her plane, and I didn't know about you, but it's not really that comfortable to stare out the stare out the windows of a plane. Um, and they just coincidentally knew each other were there, and they walked out on the tarmac. I mean, I guess Bill Clinton has some some different privileges than I would. But it just uh, that doesn't seem like a coincidence to me where what uh, Rachel Maddow is trying to tie together just doesn't make much sense. So after 20 minutes or more, Maddow returned from the commercial break, literally holding Trump's tax returns in the air. Unfortunately, viewers learned three disappointing facts. Number one, they were for the year 2005. So that was a long time ago. Number two, they confirmed that Trump is really rich. Oh, my God. We didn't know that. And they revealed that he pays a lot of taxes have here uh, is a copy of Donald Trump's tax returns. We have his federal tax return for one year for 2005. I believe this is the only set of the president's federal taxes that reporters have ever gotten a hold of. Uh, what we have are these two pages, front and back, from the same 1040 form that you might have filled out when you file your taxes. Um, and in terms of what's on here, let me give you the basics. Um, aside from the numbers being large, uh, these pages are straightforward. He paid uh, $38 million, looks like $38 million in taxes. Uh, he took a big write-down of $103 million. More on that later. Uh, if you add up the lines for income, he made more than $150 million in that year. Oh, my God. Can you, can you, can you believe all this, all this, uh, all these groundbreaking news that we found out does she even know hey he took a hundred three thousand dollar write-off does anybody know what that is you know what remember when he uh lost everyone's oh he lost a billion dollars in uh in atlantic city when he bankrupted one of his hotels does anybody know how that gets written off when you lose a billion dollars you get to write it off against future earnings but you don't get to write it all off at once so maybe that hundred three thousand dollar write-off which was on line 21 of the 1040 which is other income which might, which would be a good place where you'd put a net operating loss, and it says C schedule on it. For those of you, I'm sure you guys didn't see this up close. I went on and looked looked at it to see what I could see because I look at tax returns every day when I'm qualifying people. Um, I don't think Rachel Maddow understands. So he made a lot of money. He took some write offs. He still paid taxes on 150 million. He paid 38 million dollars in taxes. So I guess all that stuff about Trump hasn't paid taxes in 10 years. I guess that was all BS, wasn't it? So, you know, in general, in general, this this whole thing for Rachel Maddow just seems like a scene from Titanic. No diamonds. You know, boss, the same thing happened to Geraldo and his career never recovered. Turn the camera off. But Maddow, who at this point had to be embarrassed by how this was playing out, playing out plowed plowed forward she brought out the journalist who mysteriously obtained this single tax return in his mailbox this document today from a pulitzer prize winning investigative journalist who's better on financial matters than almost anybody else in the business his name is david k johnston uh, these pages turned up the other day in his mailbox first of all congratulations on this this scoop what can you tell us about how how you got these pages how you got this document? came in the mail over the transom let me point out it's entirely possible that donald sent this to me Oh, here's another conspiracy theory. Donald Trump sent him to us. First of all, this guy is smarter than any financial analyst out there. And the first thing we ask is, how did you get these? 
Well, they came in the transom. They they popped into my mailbox. Maybe Donald Trump put them out. Give me a break. Even and even even some of her friends on the left, like Stephen Colbert, were making fun of Maddow in the, in just a matter of hours. I hold in my hand something very significant. It is a joke. <laughs> a joke that we have confirmed has been heard by Donald Trump. We believe this is the first time any joke connected with Donald Trump has been released. This is an old joke from before he was president. We've obtained this joke legally. The First Amendment gives us the right to tell this joke. This, this piece of paper I hold in my hand, the part facing me with the words that you can't see. This is the document with the joke. The joke in question. Why did the chicken... The first word on chickens. Chickens are flightless birds domesticated 3,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. They produce both meat and eggs, as well as companionship. They are eaten by people. People like Russian oligarch Dmitry Ribliobliev. Riboflavin. Rama-lama-ding-dong. Rabo-rabo-ro-ro. He's a Russian with confirmed ties to chickens. More on that later when I discuss it with this chicken expert. But back to the joke. Why did the chicken cross the road? Okay, what are roads? Why do we need them? Do tax dollars pay for roads? They do. What can be a road? Is it a highway? Is it a road? Is it a track, a via, a tollway? A thoroughfare or a public way traveled by foot, cart, car, truck, bus, bicycle, and of course, other. And where is this road crossing chicken going? Mar-a-Lago? Is it going to Russia to be chicken Kiev? These are important questions I will be answering. But whether or not you're a Trump supporter, whether or not you've heard this joke before, it ought to give you pause that after all of this buildup, I still haven't gotten to the punchline. <laughs> so without further ado, why did the chicken cross the road? <laughs> the answer right after this break. Amazing. What are roads? What are roads? Who paid for them? Did the taxpayers pay? You know what? I hadn't thought about it until I listened to that clip from uh, Stephen Colbert that, you know what, uh, Rachel Maddow and... Elizabeth Warren kind of look like sisters, don't they? You know how uh, you know how they say dogs dogs take on a look of their masters. Eh, maybe uh, there's a connection there. Rachel Maddow and Elizabeth Warren hadn't thought about that, but who knows? Who knows? So that's that's the amazing the amazing embarrassment of PMS NBC this this week. So let's let's go on to the next topic, uh, Obamacare repeal. House Republicans continue to fight for the American Health Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare replacement. If you listened last week, then you know why I'm not a fan of this bill, but some people on the left are taking opposition a little too far. Here's liberal champion Bernie Sanders. If this legislation is passed, millions of people are off of health insurance, not able to get to a doctor when they must, thousands of Americans will die. Well, the audio was a little rough on that, but you know, millions of Americans will be thrown off health insurance and they won't be able to get to doctors when they must and thousands of people will die. 
Amazing, amazing. So uh, let me uh, let me take some of the the drama out of that. Um, I have a I have my uh, my orthopedic doctor that I actually quoted last last week um, talks about uh, what his his cure for the healthcare system is, and I won't go into it again this week. But I will say, you know, on this healthcare plan, I'm really behind Rand Paul on this. I think Rand Paul really has has good insight into what we need to do with the Obamacare. And I think we need to repeal it and not replace it. I think we need to let the free market do what it always does. It makes everything right. And I think if we want to have a, uh, a taxpayer fund that says, Hey, people that need insurance that don't have it, they need some help. This is how we help them with this taxpayer fund. I don't really have a problem with that. I really just don't want them altering my whole health healthcare plan and my, the whole way I get healthcare, and I'm not even talking about insurance. I'm talking about the healthcare system, because if you haven't had to have healthcare in the last couple of years, you have no idea. Young kids aren't going to buy health insurance because they're because they're healthy. They don't need it. They're they're bulletproof. They're young. They're healthy, and because there's no pre-existing conditions allowed to keep you off of health insurance, there is no reason to buy health insurance, and there's no no reason that insurance the whole insurance market makes any sense if people aren't paying premiums that don't use it. And that's the whole concept behind it. But, but the, uh, there's Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi. You'll remember what she said in 2010 before passing Obamacare. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. And now, now listen to what uh, what she said in a letter to Speaker Paul Ryan this week. Pretty ironic. This is from a report on Breitbart. Tuesday, Pelosi wrote, Members must not be asked to vote on this legislation before the Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation have answered the following questions about your legislation in 2018 and 19. Over the 10-year budget window and in the decade after, how will this bill measure up to the Affordable Care Act and current Medicaid law on coverage, quality, and cost? How will it impact Medicare solvency? Pelosi said Ryan should appreciate her concerns. Mr. Speaker, as a former chair of both the Committee on Ways and Means and the Budget, you understand the importance of having the numbers as well as anyone. The American people and members have a right to know the full impact of this legislation before any vote in the committee or by the whole House. These are critical questions, and I hope the Republicans will honor their responsibility to the American people both before the committee vote and before the final bill goes to the House floor. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Can you say hypocritical? I don't know. It seems like uh, seems like there was a little difference, little difference between now and seven years ago when uh, Pelosi and Reid and and Obama ran our country. Uh, pretty sad. Pretty sad. And here's what Trump says about the Democrats' opposition to the bill. If we had the greatest health care bill ever in history and we needed eight votes from the Democrats to get us up to the 60 number that you would need, they wouldn't vote for it. So it's a very selfish thing. They're doing a very, very bad disservice to the country. The one thing that the one thing that I like is uh, hearing uh, is hearing uh, Newt Gingrich uh, speak on this and he's saying, hey, you know what? Trump 
will make the right decisions. He goes, he's he's doesn't have any experience in politics, but he's learning as fast as any you've ever seen anybody learn. And when you hear Trump talk, he talks about, hey, the final bill, you're going to love it. The final bill, you're gonna... he's not saying like, like Paul Ryan is, this is all we have. This is the closest we're ever going to get. We don't have any other choices. We only have this. I don't think that's the case. You guys are thinking completely wrong about the government running healthcare. You need to say, hey, repeal this thing, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to say, repeal the health care bill, effective November of this year or January of next year. Let it play out. Well, the insurance companies have a chance to revamp their old policies, their old actuarial tables, their old um, business plan, and say, hey, you know what? Based on what our data says, this is how we have to sell insurance. This is what makes sense. And these are the plans that people want. And these are the plans that will make sense. And this is what sells because guess what? The free market always works. Hey, I'm out of time for part one. We're going to go to five minutes of commercials, traffic, and weather. I'm going to be right back with part two. I'm going to talk about the travel ban. And we'll even talk a little bit about some real estate. Don't go away. Welcome back to part two of the main event. My name is Ed Hoffman, president of Wholesale Capital Corporation, your local direct mortgage lender. I don't talk a lot about real estate, but I will talk a little bit about it. But if you're interested in getting some financing on real estate, call me toll free at 855-640-2020. I'll talk, I'll talk more, a little bit more later in the show about some uh, real estate tips that I have based on stuff that's happening uh, on a weekly basis that I'm seeing because I don't believe I don't believe that anybody has unique experiences. I think everyone's kind of dealing with the same stuff. And uh, if it's happening to you in your search for a house, it's happening to everybody else. Or if it if it hasn't happened to you yet, it will happen. And you need to have some just some plain plain straight thinking on how to deal with this stuff. But first, let's finish up with what's going on in politics here. Um, the travel ban developments. This is this is. This is kind of enraging to me. Um, hours before the travel ban, if you remember that uh, one of Trump's uh, executive orders uh, early in his presidency, of course, he's only been in there for, what, 53 days or something. So, I don't know, four weeks ago, he had the travel ban where he limited uh, limited the immigration from seven, seven uh, Muslim countries that we weren't going to let anybody in for 90 days till we figured out how to vet them. So what does that mean? Hey, for 90 days, we're not going to let anybody in from Iran and Iraq. And uh, well, Iraq wasn't part of it. Um, Syria and there's there's seven countries and countries where we don't get any information on these people. We don't know who these people are. They come over. They come over. We let one person in. And then as soon as they let them in, let them in, they say, hey, you're allowed to bring in your family. And they bring in their kids that look like they're 40. Well, this is one of my children. He's only 17. He looks like he's 40. Well, he just developed fast. And we don't know who he is. And uh, as it happened in uh, Northern California, was it? Where the the one kid that came over, you know, less than a year after they let him in as somebody's kid, uh, ran his car into a, a university and started stabbing people <clears throat> until the campus policeman. That was Ohio? I don't think it was. I think that was uh, Northern California. That was Berkeley, wasn't it? I think it was Berkeley. I'm arguing with Dan, the engineer. He thinks it was Ohio. I think he's wrong. You know what? Everybody's entitled to their opinion, but mine's the right one. So just get over it and just go with what I say. 
Um, if I'm wrong, I'll fix it. I'll, uh, I'll correct myself. Was I right, Dan? Okay, just we'll say it's Berkeley. If I'm wrong, I'll say something after you've forgotten about it. So, <clears throat> so the travel ban got uh, voted down by a couple of uh, Ninth Circuit uh, judges, where they said, "Hey, this is not a, this is not America. We should let people in. We don't hate people. You know what? Hey, all he's trying to do is protect us. We don't know who these people are. Who's coming into our country? And since there seems to be a hotbed of 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 people that hate America over there. Let's just stop everybody from coming in until we figure out how we can tell the difference between the bad people and the nice people. And I'll use the San Bernardino uh, uh, example again. Remember, there's this guy, Saeed Farouk, who lived in San Bernardino, who was a U.S. citizen, born born and raised here in the Inland Empire, Southern California. And uh, then he decided that he wants to bring in his wife, his wife-to-be, his fiance. Uh, what was her name? Tafshin Malik. And she came from, I don't know, Pakistan or Iran or somewhere over there. And uh, But she they didn't have a chance to, to uh, vet her. And because she's coming in to marry an American citizen, they just let it go. But she was a radical Muslim. And she came over here and proceeded to, uh, to radicalize Saeed Farouk until they uh, walked in on a uh, uh, December 2nd last year. Uh, in 2015 into a, a big Christmas party at County of San Bernardino and uh, killed 14 and a half people. The half being one of the, one of the uh, deceased was pregnant. And we talked about, we've talked about this many times on this radio station, but that's, that's why, that's why we need to protect the United States. We need to have some way to, to figure that out. So instead of, instead of, and I thought this was, I thought this was a good idea. Instead of, fighting against the the ban on his executive order he said okay i'm just gonna abandon that one i'm gonna rewrite it and he fixed all the stuff so uh, hours before it was set to go into effect this week two federal judges blocked the second version of the president's travel ban in both of the rulings the judges cited trump's statements about muslims during the presidential campaign the ruling by u.s district court judge Derek watson who presides in hawaii said that the new executive order failed to pass legal muster at this stage and and the state had established a strong likelihood of success on the claims of religious discrimination. A strong likelihood, and the state had established a strong likelihood of success on their claims of religious discrimination. So they felt that the state could beat this by just saying religious discrimination. Well, I have some issues with that. Uh, calling calling Muslims a religion because it doesn't seem to be a religion. It seems to be a way of life. Kill everybody who's not Muslim. So in the decision published Thursday morning, federal judge Theodore Schwang, C-H-U-A-N-G of Maryland. How do you say that? Schwang. Sounds like a, a Wayne's World thing. Of Maryland also blocked the president's order. Judge Schwang uh, cited candidate Trump's cable news interviews as evidence of the religious animus behind the travel ban. The judge quoted Trump telling Anderson Cooper, we can't allow people coming into this country who have the this hatred of the United States. And it's hard to tell who's who when it comes to peaceful Muslims versus radical Muslims. Here's what Trump had to say, it in a, say, say about it in a crowd uh, on in Tennessee on Thursday. You don't think this was done by a judge for political reasons, do you? No. This ruling makes us look weak. 
which, by the way, we no longer are. We're going to fight this terrible ruling. We're going to take our case as far as it needs to go, including all the way up to the Supreme Court. We're going to win. We're going to keep our citizens safe. And regardless, we're going to keep our citizens safe. Believe me. The order he blocked was a watered-down version of the first order that was also blocked by another judge and should have never been blocked to start with. This new order was tailored to the dictates of the Ninth Circuit's, in my opinion, flawed ruling. And let me tell you something. I think we ought to go back to the first one and go all the way, which is what I wanted to do in the first place. See, Ch- Trump is learning. His instinct says, hey, go for the throat. But someone's saying, hey, just start over. Don't don't fight this one. Start over. So let's get some more information. Let's uh, talk about some more revelations since this happened. Okay, so the judge, uh, U.S. District Court Judge Derek Watson, who pres- presides in Hawaii, blocked the uh blocked the order on Wednesday. Coincidentally, might just be coincidence because nobody knew that Barack Hussein Obama was going to pop into Hawaii. No, it was an unexpected trip um because I think he was in uh San Jose uh earlier in the day and all of a sudden, hey, 5 hours later he's in Hawaii. And uh that's Monday afternoon. Um and then Tuesday he's uh known to be uh dining Dining uh, at some restaurant like uh, half a mile away from uh, from uh, the judge's house, who just happened to have graduated Harvard Law School in 1991, the same year that Barack Hussein Obama did, and uh, and you know what? What was he doing in Hawaii? Just hey, just went to vacation. No one knew he was going to be there, but he just popped in, and the next day, uh, his buddy from college blocks the. Uh, Blocks the the executive order. Do you think there's anything having to do with anything here? You know what? You notice how when George Bush left office, no matter how much Obama and his people insulted him, he just never came out and engaged. And I saw him speak a couple of times during Obama's uh, presidency, and he's very careful not to not to uh, not to insult or undermine the current president. I saw him uh, on an interview with uh, Sean Hannity trying to get him to comment on it, and Sean Sean couldn't get uh, uh, George W. Bush to even make a comment on it. He's saying, hey, you know what? The president's job is a hard job, and he's he a class act, total class act. That's how you're supposed to be. What does Obama do? He buys a mansion in, in uh, Washington, D.C., right by the White House. He buys a mansion... In Southern California, in the uh, I don't know Palm Desert or or uh, Palm Springs or Rancho Mirage, somewhere out there by Palm Springs, and he buys the old uh, house in uh, on Honolulu in Hawaii. That I don't know if it's Honolulu, but it's on the the island of Oahu, as I understand it, where uh, Magnum PI filmed his uh, or Magnum PI lived in the guest house. Uh, Tom Selleck in the in the uh, series Magnum PI back in the late seventies, early eighties probably was the 80s um and he bought that house i don't know where obama got all his money because he didn't have any money eight years ago when he went into presidency and i don't think you make that much for selling books and i don't know that he sold that many books after he became president 
but he seemed to be worth like $26 million when he left the presidency. Does anybody think that's a problem? You come into the presidency with nothing or no significant net worth, and you leave with $26 million. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I could be, I'm a, I must be a conspiracy theorist, but he showed up on Monday, spent Tuesday, uh, Tuesday in, uh, in Hawaii, had dinner really close to the courthouse and Wednesday, the order was blocked. I don't know. I don't know. But you know, when it, when it talks like a duck and it waddles like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. If it tastes good with orange sauce on it, then it's probably a duck. And I think, uh, Obama is, uh, just sore loser you know he's not a sore loser he's just uh sour cherries sour grapes sour whatever you call them oh i don't get i don't get i don't get to fly around in air force one anymore so i'm gonna just secretly slime the the new the new president i'm kind of embarrassed that i spent eight years in there and didn't do squat but mess up the country and spend 10 trillion dollars of of the taxpayers money and trump's in there and he's actually creating jobs and he's actually making the stock market go up for a good reason. And he's making things, you know what? The, all the signs are that the economy is getting better and and the, the confidence in the economy has, has is going crazy. And Obama was there for eight years and didn't do squat, except for blame, blame, uh, blame Trump. I heard uh, some, of the, some of the Democrats say, oh, all the new jobs here are because of uh, Obama. Trump just stepped in during it. I don't think so. I don't think so. Although Obama blamed everything that happened during his on Bush, except for killing Osama bin Laden. He took credit for that. I don't know. What did he do to do that? He watched on TV. I don't know. Amazing. I don't know if you guys think about this stuff, but I'm assuming that most people don't really engage. Most people are watching, uh, watching, uh, I don't know, the Simpsons or, uh, uh, real housewives or, uh, one of them, the Kardashians or uh, the football or basketball, and they're not really paying attention. So I figured, hey, in one hour a week, you can hear my show and know what's and know what's going on. I'll just summarize it all. So let's talk about something I I saw in uh, in real estate this week that I think is not uncommon. So first time home buyers, I have this couple that's first time home buyers, and they're shopping for a house. Uh, we talk about we do what we're supposed to do. We talk about their finances. We talk about what they qualify for. We talk about their credit. We talk about how much money it's going to cost and what to shop for and what they're looking for. I tell them, hey, get with your realtor and figure out where you you know go see what go see what you see in this city. Go see what you see in this city in your price range and decide what city makes the most sense for you guys based on how much you can afford, how much you qualify for and what you're comfortable with. So they decide on a particular city and they start shopping there. And I said, see 10 houses before you, you know, there's a difference between buying a house that you're going to live in and buying a house that you're investing in. When you're investing in a house, the only thing that matters is the money. You know, does it, does it cash flow? Does it make sense? Because there's no emotions in business. So you, you see a house. Wow. I like this one. Do the numbers. What's it going to cost you to buy it? What's it going to cost to fix it up? What's it going to? What's the payment going to be on it? And what's the thing going to cash flow? And if it makes sense, go for it. Well, you know, in ten years, it's going to be worth a lot of money. Nah, uh, 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 uh. Make money when you buy it. Don't make money when you don't count on. Don't buy something that you're going to make money when you sell it. But make some. It has to make sense when you buy it. But these people are buying a house to live in. The main pri- The main. The main concern when you're buying a house to live in is what makes my wife happy. Okay. You guys understand that. 
And it doesn't really, you know, the guys go in, they look at the, hey, where's my car going to go? Where's the place for my my toys in the garage? Where's my uh, where's my uh, big screen going to go? And that's all they care about, okay? The women have to live there. So, you know what? And if your wife's happy with it, that's the house you want to buy. So they're looking at houses and they're and they're and they're looking at the pretty houses, the houses that all been fixed up. So as an investor who fixes houses up and flips them, you know what? If I find a house that that is just beat up, I can put ten, fifteen, twenty thousand into it and add fifty thousand dollars to the price. So if that's if that's uh, what your concern is, we want a house that's clean and pretty and nice. Okay, understand you're going to pay top price for it. So they get into bidding wars on a couple of them on the same street, uh, two weeks, two weeks apart from each other, nice houses. And they got outbid because we're saying, Hey, this is what the house will probably appraise at. This is what you're going to need. And I told him, I said, if you really love this house that much, go over the price because you don't want to lose the house. You don't want to lose the house. That's perfect for you based on a couple thousand bucks. Cause a couple thousand bucks a year from now, 10 years from now, five years from now is, is going to be a glass of water out of the ocean. Oh, and I went, and I talked about seeing 10 houses. I said, I told him, I said, if the first house you see is the perfect house in the perfect neighborhood for the perfect price, go see nine more houses at that price range in that same area. And at least you'll know by the end of the day, when you're writing that offer, that you'll know, you'll know, you'll know that that was the right house. Okay. If you see the first house you see and you make an offer, you don't know if it's the right house. If you haven't seen 10 of them, and I know you realtors are out there and saying, don't make me take them to 10 houses. I know exactly what they want. Okay. If you're the buyer, make sure that you know, and it doesn't take that long to see 10 houses. Okay. And so go see, so you know, so they write the offer on these things and they got outbid on both of them. I wrote a, I wrote a perfect, uh, uh, credit, credit, uh, not a credit, uh, um, pre-qualification letter. I wrote a perfect pre-qualification letter, told them I could close the thing in two weeks, told them what great people these were and uh, included their their automated approvals and their everything, everything that was going on. I even talked to both realtors on it, but somehow they got outbid. So they got outbid. So what did they do? Instead of, instead of uh, uh, looking at houses that weren't quite as pretty, they went to another city, which was a little less expensive and they did the same thing and they outbid on something else. And they actually got in escrow and the appraisal didn't come in. And they bid three hundred and five thousand on a house that was listed for three ten, but it had been on the market for about a month and apparently had fallen out of fallen out. And the appraisal came in fifteen thousand dollars low. And I told him, he goes, Well, what should we do? I said, Well, it's it's worth two ninety. Said if you want this house. The, the the seller apparently said no they wouldn't take 290 they would take less but they they didn't want 290 and uh they would say 295 i said if you want to want this house i said go back and look at these other houses and realize there's a thing called a there's a the financing financing product called a FHA 203k for those of you that are that are shopping for brand new houses or you're shopping for for a new house to live in there there's a there's a conventional version of this called home ready uh, not home ready, uh, home style, where you can actually buy the house and put in all your fix up stuff into the price. As long as the house will appraise, you can buy a house that's that's beat up, and you can go in and do all kinds of repairs to it within your purchase price of your house. And I said, look at these houses in this other city you were looking at before, which is closer to your work. I said, I said, look at some of these and just say, 
instead of 290 you could pay instead of 305 you could pay 290 or 285 and add $15,000 and put in new carpet and paint and appliances, windows and all that stuff and you're going to be about the same place you are except for you're not bidding so many and look some of these houses have been on the market for 45 days which means which means the seller's probably thinking he's probably too high or it's he's not getting very many people bidding on it cuz the house isn't pretty so they're out shopping for that I said, and then go, but go look at these houses and then go back and look at the other one. And you decide if you still want that house bad enough. And if you still want that house bad enough, then 5,000 bucks is 5,000 bucks. You know, once you close escrow, that's the price. And I don't believe, I believe that a lot of people go through this and they don't, and they don't realize, they don't realize that, Hey, you know what? You get tied up on the emotions of buying a house. And we talked, we talked to, uh, my friend, Joey Jones, who just went through this in, uh, in Georgia. And so I know this is happening nationwide that you get tied up in how you shop for houses and you go, ah, what should I do here? What, what should I do? You know, the appraisals come in and load the appraisals there. The appraiser goes out there to protect the bank and to protect the buyer. He's not there to screw up the, screw up the trans. Oh, this appraiser, he's just screwing up the transaction. That's not what he's there for. He has to document, he has to document through data that the value is there on that house. He's there to make sure that you don't pay too much for that house and that the bank isn't using, giving too much uh, loan against something that isn't worth how much they're lending on it. Okay, so keep that in mind. Keep your emotions in check. And uh, you know, if you have to sit sit down one weekend and watch flip that house or fix it and flip it or uh, uh, love it or sell it or one of those one of those shows, uh, they seem to be on all weekend on Saturdays on uh, on. Uh, home and garden or FX or one of those stations, you know, where they're, they're going in and taking beat up houses and say, Hey, this is what your budget is. Uh, I think the people's names are gain the two, uh, the couple that does that. And there's the property brothers and all these other ones. They go in and say, Hey, this is what your budget is. Let's find up a beat up house and we'll create what you're looking for. Learn to look at houses like that. The most important thing to do when you're buying a house, living is finding the, finding the perfect neighborhood. You can, you can fix your house. You can fix your house to fit the neighborhood. You can't fix the neighborhood to match your house. So if you buy the nicest house in the neighborhood, um, you can't you can't make the neighborhood get better to, to match your house. You can buy the ugliest house in the neighborhood and fix up the house to match your neighborhood, and that way you're getting good value. And, of course, if your wife's happy with the floor plan, and then she can pick out her color of carpet, and she can pick out the paint, and she can, uh, you know, new windows and new uh, counters and cabinets and and uh, and appliances make your wife happy guys because that's what the secret to be you being happy is make your wife happy so keep that in mind you're out there shopping for houses uh, keep your uh, keep your emotions in and it's not just about money but you have to you have to make there has to be some kind of sense in what you're doing and uh, I think that's I think that's a a universal a universal problem you get tied up you get in the emotions you say Oh man, I love this house. We're all excited about it. I hope we get it. And hopefully the realtor is steering you towards, I mean, uh, I'll tell you that, uh, I have a house that's, that we, that we, uh, fixed up, uh, and we had a, had an, had an idea that we were going to probably resell it for five thirty when we got done. And when it all got done, my realtor says, well, you know what? I think maybe there's some comps that would, that would, uh, we might be able to get as high as five seventy five. You know, this, there, there's some, there's some matching, uh, matching properties. I said, okay, hey, if there's, if there's another forty-five thousand bucks in this thing, let's put it on the market five sixty-nine and see what happens. 
we had it on the market for five sixty nine. Guess what? Didn't sell. We got a lot of people looking at it, but nobody made an offer. Here's the trick. Houses sell when they're priced right. So I said, either something's wrong with the house or a price too high. Let's drop the price. And guess what? When we end, end up, we're about 539 and now we're probably getting an offer, probably getting an offer this week. We just dropped the price. Say, so, hey, let's, let's ride it for a while. Sellers know when they price their thing too high, if it's too high. If somebody, somebody is madly in love with that house, they'll write an offer. But you know what? They know. The realtor knows. The realtor knows when they listed it and the realtor knows when they took you to it. And you know what? Say, will it appraise? It might be close, but it might not. And when you get when you get into that situation, keep your head about you. Keep your head about you. You know, the Trump talks about the art of the deal. Hey, you know, you need to have to know how to make a deal. You have to be able to, to make a deal for yourself and you have to understand the seller side as well. There has to be some give and take. It's a compromise. So when you go out when you go out to shop for a house, get pre-qualified. And if you're in California or Arizona, call me at 855-640-2020. And if you're in uh in uh, otherwise just make sure you get pre-qualified by a, a lender and get a good realtor that you like. And what's the trick to uh to the the good realtor? Somebody you like. Somebody you like that you can get in a car and will tell you the truth and uh and will help you find the house that's perfect for you. So anyway, I'm out of time for uh, this episode of the main event. Go out there and find a house. The, the economy has all the signs of getting better. Rates are slowly going up. The market's coming back. Real estate's coming back. Do I think there's a bubble? There is isn't. There is no bubble. Don't worry about it this time. Everybody who's buying houses is qualifying for it. Folks, thanks for listening to the main event. My name is Ed Hoffman. I'll be back again with you next week. The content in this program is not intended to be legal advice. The views expressed are those of Ed Hoffman and his invited guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or policies of Wholesale Capital Corporation. WCC is licensed by the California Bureau of Real Estate Broker License Number 01147747 and California Finance Lenders License Number 603K610. Also licensed in Arizona by the Arizona Department of Financial Institutions. MB Number 096199.